Thanks, Matt, for that great reminder. Uh, kids, you're now dismissed to our kids' program. Have a fun time with Mr. and Mrs. Friel. <laughs> I just got a glare. <laughs> wow. I guess it would be the same as someone calling me Mr. Clausen. On a funny story, I was doing a, a presentation of some kind for, in a high school, and they called me Reverend Clausen, and I went, wow. My name is Nathan, Pastor Nate. Uh, welcome to NOLA if you're visiting. Uh, we're excited to be able to gather together. I don't know about you, but I think I needed today. I needed to come and I needed to hear your voices as we came to worship our God. It is good to just hear us sing these songs and, and worship together in every aspect from the reading of his word to the singing, but now as we continue in the preaching of God's word. Just a couple of things to bring your attention before we continue to worship is, uh, if you haven't, please register uh, for worship services. Because of the new guidelines, we want to try and seek to be faithful to those. So if you could every week register just to let us know, it just helps make sure that we have the right space and all that sort of thing. And uh, you still have to check in though. Uh, so it's just another step, but anyways. Um, but also, uh, we're excited to have two testimonies of potential new members, uh, Josh, Joshua, and Paul, Josh, um, please talk to them. I could point them out, but they'll be embarrassed. Um, but just please talk to them. Get to know them. If you have any questions about the process, please talk to myself or one of the deacons. We have interviewed them, and we feel that they have a believable profession of faith and that they are saved, and uh, they would like to lock arms with us as a church. So please talk with them. They're here this week in the back, that area. So you can talk to them over there. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for today. I thank you for your church. I thank you for the joy it is to come into worship, to, to hear each other, to talk with each other, to encourage each other. And Lord, as we open up your word together, as we continue to worship you as your word is preached God, I pray that it would encourage us, convict us, and spur us on. Lord, we come together beaten, bruised, beat up. Lord, I reflect upon a picture of Normandy Beach, and a pastor says, this is the church. And God, some of us are medics, and some of us are wounded on the beach, Lord, I pray none of us are the ones shooting at others. But Lord, we come together to just encourage one another. Remind each other of who you are and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. This has nothing to do with me or any of us, but to glorify your name. I want to speak of you. I want to praise your name. God, I can't do this on my own. So Lord, will you do this? Will you help me by your spirit to preach the sermon with what is needed? Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. Years ago, I was staying with my uncle, or not my uncle, my cousins and my aunt uh, up in Stratford, and uh, sleeping over because they were my favorite cousins. I only had, like, them, so uh, it was okay. Um, but um, we were hanging out, and I was there, and my cousin got into trouble by his mom, my aunt. And uh, I had to leave the house as something was going on that I wasn't able to see, so I don't know. But I, so I got onto his bike, and I was biking around his neighborhood, and I thought I knew exactly where I was, and then I found out I w didn't know where I was. I was completely lost. And I'm usually a fairly keep it cool type of guy, but over, I don't know, 30 minutes of biking around the neighborhood trying to find this house, I quickly realized that my heart was starting to get a little anxious. I was completely lost. It wasn't until later that my cousin 
Uh, I guess they realized I hadn't been around for a long time, so he was biking around trying to find me. And thankfully, I was able to find my way. Someone had to come and guide me back to where I needed to go. When was the last time you got really, really lost? When was that last time that you felt, well, lost? And, and it was probably before GPSs, so it might be a while, and you're probably dating yourself by admitting that you got lost. Don't look around. But where were you trying to go? Where did you end up uh, going instead? How did it happen? Should you have done something a little differently? And you know, as we get into this sermon today, as you look at the title, what we believe about marriage and sexuality, this is a loaded subject. It's a subject that... um, Everybody has an opinion on. But as we talked about earlier, and we'll talk about it again, and we reiterate it again, the first sermon we taught about was, what is the Bible? What do we believe about the Bible? And we believe ultimately that the Bible is the word of God. That I don't get to guess. In fact, I don't have to guess. And the relief that that brings me as I come to subjects just like this. Because let me say it again. If the Bible is useful for all things, if it's useful for all things, as it says it is, then it's useful for all things. That's the standard, right? But as we get into this, as we talk, there's a lot of talk about same-sex marriage in the news Especially over the last several years. I need some water. <coughs> Just throw it. Oh, there we go. <coughs> we think so. <coughs> but there's been a lot of talk about same-sex marriage in the news over the last several years. In fact, it's not necessarily even about that anymore. It's moved on to other subjects. Like trans. Genderism and, and what it means to have a gender. Is there a gender? Is gender fluid? And all of these things. And a lot of Christians have been left reeling at how quickly the culture has changed. I'm, on, I'm not even 40 yet. And I can go back and say, what happened? I, even th- I, I think of even terms of my, like my computer. Like the first computer I had growing up with uh, was an IBM 286. Beautiful machine. Life was simpler back then. (laughs) Didn't have a mouse, but it was okay. But things have changed so much. And like travelers who are, are, who look quickly, uh, who are, who are, who are lost, sorry. Like travelers who, who looks around and finds themselves in unfamiliar surroundings. We might wonder, how did we get here? Whatever the reason you feel is the answer to that. We're not here to point fingers. We're not here to blame. I don't, it doesn't matter. Whatever the reason is, we have a responsibility before men and God to be faithful to our witness for Christ. Despite the societal pressure to approve uh, of homosexuality or any of these other things, we need to have a biblical view of marriage and speak grace grace and truth into a culture that desperately needs to hear it. So what does the Bible say about it? From the start of it, homosexuality is not part of the creation story. In order to have homosexuality as part of the creation story, it would require a completely different story. So let's start where it all starts. In the beginning... Before we go anywhere, we go to the, what the Bible begins with, God. As we see in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, in the beginning God, sorry, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right here from the beginning we see creation, God, holy, all-powerful, just, good, loving, gracious compassionate, merciful, creator, sustainer, created all that we have, everything. He created man, and out of man he created woman to rule over the earth and to fill the earth, to have dominion over the earth. 
But, but, buts are either good or bad, right? There's something called the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They chose what they wanted. They elevated themselves above the creator of the universe. They did what Paul describes in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The root of sin is the failure to value God above all things. And I really do mean all things. So that he is not honored and praised as he should be. We see what wasn't supposed to be become what is. God created. He created all things. And the Bible says he looked down and he said it was good. Then Adam and Eve come along and say, well, we think we can do it better. That's called the fall. That's called sin. That's called treachery. That's called rebellion. And it, like a poison, infiltrates all of humanity. At the root of sin is a failure to value God above all things. It was the consequences. This disobedience was, was the, co- the consequence of this, of this disobedience was now we needed to be rescued, which is this next step of what we see. Even from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I was reminded today in, in, in our prayer time, one of, our, one of the people I was praying was, isn't like all of our isms, can we all go back to even the, just the first 11 chapters of the Bible and decide what we need and what it, the Bible truly says? But right from the, from the beginning of the Bible, we see that God created that man sinned, that humanity sinned against God. But right in Genesis 3, we see the beautiful story of a rescue. So we see the central plot of the Bible come through in Genesis 3 as a holy God begins to make a way to dwell amongst his unholy people. We see the beginning of God's rescue plan, a process made and a promise kept through him stepping down from his throne. God himself steps down from his throne. He doesn't stay up there high and mighty. He could have, had full right to, but he steps down from his throne to pay the price for my treachery, for my rebellion, to heal my brokenness, to bring me back into a right relationship with a holy God. He steps down from that and takes the punishment for my rebellion so that we may have life, that I may have life in him both now and forever. God sent out what is going to happen. God set out what is going to happen in the restoration of the people for himself, for his own possession, all things made new forever with God. The Bible is a story of God reaching out to his people dead in their sin and their rebellion and their brokenness, separate from him, and how he steps down from his throne for you and for me to save us from our own consequences of our own rebellion, which is hell forever, for eternity. Outside of God's grace and how he has called us to himself, we are all damned to the same place. Faith is a gift. Faith is what enables us to believe, and it is a gift. Regardless of the specific sin Regardless of the specific sin we live in, we're all sinful. In the eyes of God, a sexual sin gets the same consequence as gossip. Let me be clear. Gossip as well. But here, we're talking about a specific one. So how do we know what is right? If we're all travelers, kind of lost, how do we know what is right? We start this series again, like I was saying, in, uh, by looking at the Bible, how it is the Word of God. And as it's the Word of God, we don't have to guess what God has to say. He has laid it out for us in His Word. And it's easy for me to come and I could preach all these specific passages on how uh, sexual sins are listed uh, and how those who continue to practice in those sins, because as we were reminded by Matt, it's a continuation of sin is actually uh, a sign of, of bad tree, right? Bad fruit. But I think what I want to try and do today is more describe the why. 
why is it this way? Why does God say this in his infallible word? In his perfect word. The question still remains, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does it say about marriage and, and about people who are born, quote-unquote, that way? I think this question that we're going to ask ourselves is something that we need to. And the first one that we need to ask ourselves is this, is what is marriage? What is marriage? And what does the Bible say about it? For this, we actually go back all the way to the beginning, before sin. And, and there three things come out as we look at, at the creation account. We see man and woman were created to complement one another. Second thing, we see that man and woman were created to become one flesh. And third, one of the purposes of marriage is to have children. And I should do this disclaimer. I should have probably started this before. If you hadn't had a conversation with your kids about the birds and the bees stuff, sorry. <laughs> but we go right to the creation story. The way women were created. So we see in Genesis 2, verses 18 to 22, this creation, this, this created design was divinely made to complement each other. Man and woman were created physically to complement one another, not as one being being supported to the other, but both made equally to complement each other. This is why we hold to a complementarian world, uh, viewpoint as well to be exactly what each other needs. It's, it's shown in the description of what Eve was to Adam, filling in the gaps that he had so that they complemented one another. We go a little deeper with Genesis 2, verses 24 to 25, that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One flesh union points to two different sexes, two different genders. These, these, these things talk about a, a sexual intimacy. When the Bible, anytime when it says they become one flesh, they're talking about sexual intercourse. They're talking about sex. Yeah, moving on. It's why Paul uses the same language. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, which says, Or do you not know what he who is joined to, uh, sorry, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, two, the two will become one flesh. When we're looking at same sex relationships, it doesn't allow these things. God created man and woman with unique parts as that, so that they become one flesh. And kids, if you got a question about that, go talk to your mom and dad. <laughs> One made from another so that both are made for each other. 1 Corinthians eleven eight says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And in verse 11 he says, Nevertheless, in the, Lord's, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Since the beginning of God's created design for marriage... Having children has also been a part of marriage. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons. Under normal circumstances, and we could get into this, all the grays. I'm not trying to be black and white here. But God divinely created a design for marriage to be of one man and one woman. Any other combination requires a completely different creation account. Any other combination requires a rewrite. So marriage has been ordained by God since creation before sin in this way. It is a picture, as Ephesians 5, 25 to 31 says. In verse 25 to 26, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Ephesians 5 gives us uh, this amazing picture of what marriage is to remind us of. In healthy circumstances, in a healthy marriage, our marriages are to point people to Christ. 
and show all that he has done for us. As a husband, I am commanded by God to love my wife as he has loved the church. Like, just try to wrap your mind around that one. So men, it's time to man up. But let us continue on. Because there's also passages here on women as well. See, the character and description of that love are made even bigger in the following clause, and which says, I get, he gave himself up for her. Even in the text to say, gave over, is pointing to that Christ took the initiative to hand himself over to death. It's a picture, marriage is a picture of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us, how he stepped down from his throne to pay the price for my rebellion. Such a self-sacrificing love is why all believers are to serve one another in love as they imitate God. Which is also, side note, another reason why those who cause dissent and disunity within the church will also not inherit the kingdom of God. This is foundational. The love between a husband and a wife is a model of Christ's love for the church, and they're tied together. Even in the Old Testament, the image of marriage was used to show uh, a picture of the covenant, the promise that God has made between God and his people. Jesus took over this teaching and boldly referred to himself as a bridegroom, showing husbands what it means to to, to, to live their lives in a way that are sacrificial to their wives. So marriage is to point to the ultimate relationship between Christ and the church. And when we begin to mess that around, it messes up the picture that it's doing. See, marriage no longer points out attention to Christ. And it's not just the issue of homosexuality and marriage and all of that stuff. It's also the issue of divorce. The divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in the world. Like These are things that we need to think about. The illustration of the gospel breaks down when you try to shift around the characters. You get that? The drama becomes distorted and confused. Some may say, that's all good. I get that. Sure, the Bible says these things. But Jesus doesn't talk about it. Jesus doesn't talk about the issue of homosexuality and marriage, so therefore it's allowed. It's good to go. If Jesus doesn't talk about it, if he doesn't condemn it, then I'm allowed to do it, or it's okay. Well, the problem is, is that Jesus does talk about it because he talks about marriage. And in Matthew 19, he actually ties, he, he, he makes marriage, he, he brings it back all the way to Genesis 2 in Matthew 19. He says, and he's talking about divorce in Matthew 19, but he still ties it back. He says, he, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. As I was saying, the context of the passage, Jesus is addressing marriage and divorce. But Jesus is aligning himself right here to Malachi, where in Malachi, God says he hates divorce. And the, but he's also referring to what we were talking about before, creation. See, even Jesus' idea of marriage, as he's addressing this issue of marriage, he's tying it all the way back to the beginning. So yes, no, he doesn't actually use the word homosexuality, but he does use marriage. And he ties it all the way back to Genesis before sin. And that's, so Jesus goes back there. And he's reminding those who are listening. The creator made the race, male and female. The implications is that the two sexes should be united in marriage. Don't miss the implications God, the creator. Then he says, for this reason. He says in Matthew. Because God made them so, a man will leave father and mother 
and be united to his wife and become one flesh. That word for this reason that Jesus says in Matthew, in Genesis, it also is in Genesis 2.24, is talking about Adam's preconceptions, uh, perception, sorry, that the woman was born of his bone and flesh of his flesh because she had been made for, from him and for him. The same thing, again, is talked about in Genesis 1.27 when we talk about one flesh. Because one flesh, again, is talking about sex, sexual intercourse. So what do we do with this? See, Jesus grounds marriage and creation in the way God has made us so it doesn't get to be defined on how I feel it should be defined, but how God defines creation. Marriage is created, it's ordained by God to be between one man and one woman in a lifelong union that humans do not have the right to alter. That is the foundation of sexuality. And we see this throughout the Bible. But you may ask again, well, what if I'm born this way? Which is actually a dwindling argument if i'm honest with you even amongst those who embrace this but from from the same argument of that is this born this way we can go all the way to romans 1 verses 18 to 27 which says this starting in verse 18 of romans 1 for for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image is resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things, creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. I need to make another rabbit trail and say this. Sex is good. The Bible talks about this, right? (laughs) I'm going to go over here now. (laughs) She's right. Amen. God created it to be good and enjoyable. It is to be enjoyed. But because God created it, he also created it to be enjoyed within boundaries that he created. That means sex outside of marriage. That means sex outside of man and woman. That means all of those sexual things. But here... In, in Romans 1, it's an echo again of Genesis 1.26. When you compare the two passages that we are looking at with Genesis 1.26 with Romans 20, with 1.23, we actually see how it interacts with each other in six different ways. That's not a coincidence, right? But Paul is trying to get a point across. When we look at God's original design, anything that happens Uh, that's opposed, opposite of the beautiful picture it gives us is a direct assault on our creator. And this is what sin distorts. Sin has distorted the image of God. We talked about this when we were looking at uh, being made in the image of God and sin and salvation. 
but how Christ and through Christ, God is restoring that image. Not perfect, because as we learned in our family worship, we still sin. We still sin. And that's why I long even more to heaven, where I can stand before the God and just be sinless, finally. Where I'm not struggling with the sins that I struggle with anymore. But I can stand before God. So Paul is tying these relationships together. Another argument that comes out even from this text is that, oh, Paul's talking about the relationship between an adult and a child. And that, yeah, no wonder he's saying that he, you shouldn't do that. Yes, no, you shouldn't do that. But that's not what the text is saying. The text is actually addressing two adults, exchanging men for men, women for, for sorry, exchanging unnatural relationships for unnatural ones. The Greek wording here is actually talking about men laying down with men, not boys. So you can't look at this text and think, oh, Paul's just talking about an abusive homosexual relationship. No, that's not what the text is saying. You've got to get to the text. I'm struggling a little bit with what Paul is saying because Paul is unapologetically clear. And I grow up in a world where I have to be politically correct all the time. Even the fact that this is, like this sermon being preached uh, can get us and me, specifically me, in a lot of trouble. But here, Paul unapologetically makes a clear point that homosexual behavior is the result of sin. Because we've sinned against God, our thinking is corrupt, and God has given us over to those impure desires. We do things that aren't supposed to be done, and we think that it is normal and good. But more than that, it distorts our identity, and our identity actually begins to be rooted in a sin rather than our identity in lack of or relationship with Christ. No, I, I said this a while ago. The perplexing thought is that uh, Christians who struggle with homosexuality identifying themselves as that. I don't identify myself by my sin. And I hope you don't either. I am a Christian who struggles with. But in Christ, I have been given a new identity. I am his. And he is mine. The image of God is being restored in me. So there is a difference between attraction and behavior. A massive, massive difference between attraction and homosexual behavior. It's a difference between sin and temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted to do something. Jesus was tempted as we were, are but he did not sin. Never once did he look lustfully at a woman. Never once did he stuff his face full of food with gluttony or have his tongue go wild with gossip. Not once did he commit any form of sexual immorality. Nothing. He, he overcame all of it. Homosexual behavior is a lifestyle that must be repented of. It is not who you are. It is a sin. So the question isn't, are you born this way? It's more of a statement. God has given us over to those sinful desires, but in his grace, he made a way back to him through his son, Jesus Christ, where we can have forgiveness and a new heart, that with, and with that heart, new desires. So what do we do with all of this? It's because we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that because the word is the wor Bible is the word of God, we don't have to guess what God has to say about something. He has said something. It's easy to get lost in this world, especially these days. I feel like there's a battle on every side. There are many things that we are told to expect 
and to accept, sorry, many things that we're told to accept, but the question for you and for me is this, what does the Bible say? The Bible is what gives us the light to navigate the darkness of this world. We're all lost, wandering around in this world, trying to figure out how in the world we got here. But the Bible gives us that guidance. It is the word of God. And that is why, as a church, in our statement of faith, we have the following statements. The term of marriage is reserved for the formalized covenant relationship between one man and one woman who commit themselves through a legal declaration to exclusive intimate companionship and sexual union with the intention of permanence. Marriage is monogamous, heterosexual, and intended for life. In that statement, there's probably four other sermons. But what does this mean for you and for me as a church? Despite the societal pressure to approve homosexuality, we must maintain a biblical view of marriage and speak grace, grace, and truth into a culture that desperately needs to hear it. Folks, the gospel is a stumbling block for the Jew and foolishness to the Gentile. It tells us that we are all sinners. And because of that, listen here, you sinner. We need to have compassion for those who are in sin. It doesn't mean we compromise. I don't, we don't compromise. But we do understand the struggle. It may not be homosexuality for you. Maybe it's gluttony for me. But we all understand what it means to struggle against sin. And because we all know what it means to struggle against sin, at least you should, if you're not struggling against sin, that's another conversation. You should, as a Christian, be struggling against sin. We have a unique place to give compassion to people, all people who are struggling with sin. We have compassion, as Paul says in Romans 7, 15, and 21 to 24. Christians are equipped to respond with real compassion for such struggles. We all understand from experience the distressing disorder of the inner man that occurs because of the indwelling sin and the brokenness of the fall. We get it. Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions, the Apostle Paul says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's like my life verse. Romans 7, 21 to 24, he says, as he continues on in the same thought, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do the right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to that as he continues on is Jesus. It doesn't mean he doesn't end the struggle. But there's freedom in Christ. Whatever your sin is, whatever the thing that you struggle with, we all sin in different ways. I can't, it bugs me, and I've been guilty of this in the past, but it bugs me when I elevate other people's sins as worse than my own. Even if I stole a cookie, Jesus would have to die on the cross for my sin. But how do we also need to do? What are, what are the other things we need to do? Not only do we need to have compassion for those who are in sin, we need to respond with prayer. Folks, we need to be on our knees before a holy God he is the only one who can change hearts. It doesn't matter how great of an argument you can give to somebody else. And whatever it is, you can't argue people into the kingdom of God. They need a heart of flesh that enables them to believe. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. 
We need to respond in prayer. So let us pray that the truth of the gospel will set them free. As Jesus says in John 8, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let us, let us knowing how much Jesus loves to redeem and to restore sin-broken people, we have to pray for our loved ones that they may see their need of a Savior. And we need to grow in greater understanding. We need to grow in understanding of the nature of, of transgender and, and conversion therapy and, and sexual orientation. We need to understand these things so we don't look like idiots or are arrogant or say something stupid. I'm using very pointed words on purpose. So we can talk to people that we don't make ignorant assumptions and say erroneous and insensitive things to people. And it would be wise for us to anticipate the possibility of discovering someday that our child or our grandchild or a cousin, nephew, niece, friend, co-worker or possibly even a parent is enduring this very struggle. If that should happen, we want to be a safe people for them to talk to, not compromising. We don't compromise. But because we understand what it means to struggle with sin, we should be able to have these conversations. And we speak the truth in love. And that's the next thing. If we are compassionate, prayerful people who reasonably understand these issues and what the Bible says about them, we are in a good position to speak the truth in love. And that means don't be a jerk. It means we do speak the truth in love. I still remember having this conversation years ago before we were married. I worked at Ford in Oakville. And uh, I was on the line and I was talking with another student and I was just sharing the gospel with him. And, and he, he said to me, so wait, my brother, who is a way better person than me, is going to hell. What's my answer to that? Outside of Jesus Christ, he is. I could be nice and compromise and maybe say something like, maybe, but the Bible doesn't allow that. But let us speak the truth in love. As Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead into Christ. In 1 John 3.18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, the current debate is played by this binary lens. Those on the left try to lump everyone who disagrees with them into this zone of bigotry. If you don't support, you hate. Meanwhile, those on the right see compromise and spinelessness in anyone who doesn't get red-faced and militant over the issue. If you don't hate, you support. But true followers of Jesus Christ will walk neither path. We have something to say that no one else is saying or can say. Distance yourself from both of them. We don't celebrate these homosexual practices. We acknowledge as God's clear revealed word that it is sin, and we don't hate those who embrace it. We love them enough to not just collapse under the pressure that we feel. If my kid is going with a fork into the electric sockets, what am I going to do? I love my child. I'm going to stop that. Just like any other thing. In this family, we all struggle with different types of sins. And if I love you, if I love Dave or Olive or any of you, I'm going to say, hey, look, you're going with a fork into the electric socket right now. Because I love you. If I didn't love you, I'd let you. I'd let you keep walking and electrocute you and tell you how that feels. 
God tells us, we get this, we get this story, we, we get to speak the good news with those sweetest, deepest, most glorious words, the cross, the same words that God spoke to us, you're wrong and you're loved. God tells us we're wrong. He tells us that the wages of sin is death, that unrepentant rebellion means judgment, that our rescue requires the cursed death of his son, and God tells us we're loved, that even while we were sinners, God died for us. And while we were unrighteous, Jesus suffered in our place, and though we were destined for wrath, Jesus welcomes us into glory. You're wrong and you're loved is the gospel. And that's the unique voice of the Christian. That's what we say, speaking from our own experience. Tim Keller says it this way, we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could ever dream. That's our message. That's our message in this debate. Because of sin, we're lost. Despite the societal pressures to approve of homosexuality, we must maintain a biblical view of marriage and speak grace and truth into the culture that desperately needs to hear it. If you're struggling with this, I would love to talk to you about it. I'm a sinner too. And if you are struggling with same-sex attraction, I want you to know the hope of the gospel. If you really just don't like anything I have to say, that's fine too, I'm used to it. But I challenge you to seek what the Bible says. I'm not saying anything the Bible doesn't. It's simply, we simply preach the word of God. This isn't my opinion. Because trust me, I really don't like talking about this. The whole week, I was like, oh man, someone's going to get mad at me. I don't like people being mad at me. I am a human. I'm not a robot. Nobody likes people not liking them. But I'm tired of it as well. This is a topic, though, that is in the Bible. And as your pastor and as a preacher, I'm called to preach the Bible. As a church, we're called to believe the Word of God as the Word of God. Folks, I've lost friends. I've lost contact with family. I've been called bigots, homophobic, hateful, etc., etc., etc. If you hold to this, you will be too. But we have a holy God. We have been called to be holy as he is. We've been called to be set apart. We've been called to be different. It's, if it's not this, it's something else. This world doesn't like it but we move forward with the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So let me end with this, though. The gospel is good news for you and for me. And whatever the sin is that you're struggling with, it could be same-sex attraction, it could be gossip, there's hope for you in the cross. There's hope for you. But there's also these great, amazing books in our library, and also some other resources. Uh, Dr. Stan Fowler, professor at Heritage, preached an excellent sermon on this uh, in the summer. It's on our website. Please look at it. He says it way better than me because he's smarter than I am. You can get that on your website. Uh, Stephanie, my wife Steph, told me uh, yesterday that there was an amazing panel discussion uh, at this weekend's The Gospel Coalition Women's Conference with Sam Elberry, Jackie Hill Perry, and Rebecca McLaughlin, who are both three people who have struggled with this specific sin. And if you want more information about that, you can talk about that, you can ask Stephanie about it. But we also have some books in our library because we like books. We have one called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story by Christopher Yon. A great book just talking about not just homosexuality, but just sexuality in general and what it means to have a holy one. So it even talks about singleness. There's a whole chapter on here on singleness. 
Here's another one called, Is God Anti-Gay? And other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and the same-sex attraction by the, one of the guys, Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is a great man of God. Loves the gospel. But he, he's been in the ministry for years as one who says, I struggle with homosexuality. Uh, here's another one by Kevin DeYoung. What does the Bible really teach us about homosexuality? These are resource books that kind of walk through what the Bible talks about with all of these things. But how about hope for all and a reminder of God's grace? Great book, Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. Another great woman of God. She was one of the keynote speakers. Great sermon on James 3 and the tongue. Speaking of gossip. There's also another one called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey into Christian faith by a woman called Rosaria Butterfield. It is amazing what God can do in the life of someone. No one is so far. No one. So these are a few things that we have. Story's gone long. I don't, I do care, but I don't. But my hope and my prayer for each of us that despite the, all the pressure that we feel, I know you feel it, I feel it too, to approve what the Bible clearly says are many different types of sinful behavior, we must maintain a biblical view of marriage and speak, God, speak grace and truth into a culture that desperately needs it. We are uniquely equipped to do that. But let us be a people of grace. I don't want to hear anybody going out there with some sign that says God hates somebody. That's going to be a very short conversation between you and me. But let me pray as we continue to worship our awesome God. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who first understands who we are in Christ that our identity would be rooted in that, that we would grow and have a deeper grasp and understanding of the grace that you have poured on us through your son, Jesus Christ, because that is what 